Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Depending on how we ask that question, uh, how we say it, we ask that question all the time. Who are you? And not just who are you, but who do you think you are? Who is that guy? When Heather and I went to Great Britain in April, we had to show people our passports. Over in Great Britain, you actually just put it in front of this screen and it would read it and say, okay, you can come in or you can't come in. We had something similar as we came back into the States. We had to prove our identity to get on the plane, to get across the border, to come back home back in July. Our identity mattered. And it matters not just who we are, but who we think we are. If I had come up and I said, I'm Cody Crumrine, let me back into the United States, and handed them my passport and it said Matt Mitchell, there might have been a question mark. It'd been even worse if I said, I'm King Charles, please let me into your kingdom right? Probably I would have been uh, taken down and questioned. It matters who we are, especially if we're trying to do something that is tied to our identity. At the Good News Cruise, I like to joke with people and say, which car do you like? Just pick one out and take it home. And we all shake our heads and we say, yeah, I wish. But we know it doesn't work that way. If we tried it, if we got into the driver's seat and we fired it up to swing it on back to our garage, the real owner would show up pretty quick with the question, who do you think you are? Where do you think you're going with that? A lot of the folks, they don't even want you to touch it. Look, enjoy, but don't touch. Much less drive it home. Who do you think you are? Well, that's the question that the Jewish religious leaders posed to John the Baptist in today's passage. Who do you think you are? And John had a ready answer, an honest answer, that makes all the difference in the world. Last Sunday, as we looked at the mind-blowing prologue of John's gospel, we learned about this astonishing person called the Word. The one we just said in our memory verse, the Word. This whole gospel is going to be about this wonderful person, the Word. And every phrase in the prologue was filled with fireworks about him. We learn that before creation, in the beginning, this person, this word, existed with God. And, at the same time, and forever, was God. He's eternal. He's distinct in some way from God the Father, and at the same time, he is the very same thing in substance and nature as God the Father. But we just professed and confessed in the Nicene Creed. The Word is God. He is the Creator. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. That's everything. More than that, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. How wonderful. And as if that wasn't enough to take in, we also learn that this Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. One person who is fully God is now fully human. And we know the name that the Word was given when He was born as a human, and it is Jesus. And as if that wasn't enough to take in, we also learn that He is the unique Son of God, God the Son, springing forth eternally from the Father, who has come to make God the Father 
known. Poof, right? Now, how do we know all that is true? Well, the week before that, we learned that John the Evangelist wrote this book to make the case. He wrote these words in front of us so that we, we believe, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing we might have life in His, life in His name. And so in many ways, John is making the case for us that requires some testimony, some expert testimony. Testimony. The sermon title is called John's Testimony, and I get it from chapter 1, verse 19. In verse 6, John had said that God sent a man named John, John the Baptist, to be a witness and to give important testimony that needs to be heard. And so that's where John starts as he finishes his prologue and begins his story proper. John chapter 1, verse 19. Are you with me? Look at that. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. We can sum up John's testimony into three key points in verses 19 through 34, and this is the first one. John the Baptist testifies, number one, I am not the Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, that's point number one. I am not the Christ. The Jewish religious leaders, one of Jesus' main opponents in this gospel, had sent an official delegation to ask John the Baptist, who do you think you are? They're not just curious. They're examining him for his qualifications. John has exploded on the scene. And lots of people were coming out to the desert to hear him preach and to be baptized. John the Baptist, or as I call him, Notorious JTB, was quite a character. The other Gospels tell us that he dressed like a prophet with clothing made of camel's hair and a diet of locusts and wild honey. And JTB was preaching repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. And he was very popular. Thousands of people were flocking to hear him. John the Baptist was a rock star. And the Jewish religious leaders were probably getting a little nervous. They were afraid that they might lose their power. Some people were clearly thinking that this weirdo, this, this popular preacher, just might be the Messiah that God had promised time and again in the Old Testament. People were on the lookout for the Christ. The, the, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Is John the baptizer what we have been looking for? So some priests and Levites were sent to ask John, who do you think you are? And John was really straightforward. Look at verse 20 again. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. Don't look at me. So they press in. Verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Why do they ask these questions? Well, let me ask you this. When did Elijah die? That was a trick question. He never did, right? Elijah was swooped up by the Lord in a fiery chariot and took straight to heaven. And the prophet Malachi said that Elijah will return before the day of the Lord. Malachi 4.5. And so these guys wanted to know if John the Baptist, okay, you're not the Christ, are you the Elijah come back from heaven? 
And John says, no. Now the truth is, it's more complicated than that. Jesus will explain that John was the Elijah to come in his role. But John is right that he is not literally Elijah returning on a chariot like some of them might have been thinking. And more than that, John knows that he is not the great prophet that was foretold in the book of Deuteronomy. So, so who is he? Verse 22, finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Who do you think you are? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice. The voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So he's not the word. He's only a voice crying out that the word will soon be heard. He's not the Christ. He's only a voice calling out that the Christ is on the way. John holds up his passport and it says, Isaiah 40, verse 3. That mysterious prophetic voice arising from the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John says, that's me. That's me. I am not the Christ, but I am the voice. Now, what do we do with that here in our lives today? Well, of course, first off, we should not treat John the Baptist as if he was the Messiah. Anyone who tries to center their lives on John will be disappointed and be missing the point. And that's true of everyone else who is not the Christ. We are so prone to making men into messiahs. We think they'll save us if just, we just put our trust in them 100%. We make this mistake with politicians all the time. We make it with pastors. We make it with celebrities. We make it with business leaders. We put our hope in false messiahs, and then we're surprised when we're disappointed. There is no life in John's name. There's no salvation in John's name. There's no rescue from Rome. Or from sin, John was just a witness, just a voice. You know who also is not the Christ? Right. We are not the Christ. I am not the Christ, and I have to be reminded of that. When I'm not mistakenly following someone else, I can also get the wrong idea that I need to save people. Like I'm their savior. We call, we call it a Messiah complex, right? Like I'm the point. It's our job to rescue people from everything they've gotten themselves into. I've made that mistake more times than I can count and it doesn't just disappoint them, but it depresses me because I've fallen into a role I cannot fill with shoes too big for me to put my feet in. It's one of the reasons why I needed a sabbatical this year to undo the accumulated effects of pretending I am the Christ. But if we're not supposed to follow John or to try to be messiahs ourselves, what are we supposed to do? 
We need to listen to the voice. Make straight the way for the Lord. See, that's a call to repent. That's a call to change our ways. That's a call to align our lives with the will of God. When the voice says the valleys will be raised up and the mountains lowered, he's, it's metaphorical language. He's saying that people will, God's people will do whatever is necessary for the Lord's coming to be smooth so the king can ride into town in style. And that means change for you and me. John was preaching a message of change. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Can I ask you what in your life needs to change? What in your life is displeasing to God? Where do you know that you need to make a turn? You know, making a turn is not easy, often. It's often not what we want to do, but we know the right course. Where do you need to make that turn? What valley in your life needs to be built up? What mountain needs to be leveled? What change do you need to make in repentance? Now, it's easy to see what others need to change, right? Uh, uh, some of you are like, I hope this guy hears what he's saying today, right? I hope, I hope she hears what that preacher is going on about. I can often point out what other people are doing wrong. And if you want some help, just ask me. I'd be glad to. But the question we should be asking today is where do we, where do I need to repent? What is crooked in my life that needs straightened for the coming of the Lord? What attitudes need straightened? What habits? What relationships? The voice is saying that John is not the Messiah, but he's very near, so get ready for his coming. And we need, like John, to also to point people to the real Messiah. We need to be the voice too. We need to give our witness. Like we said last week, we need to witness too. Not pointing people towards us, but pointing people towards Jesus. Just like we did out there yesterday. And thank you, Chip and Kim, for leading the charge on that with the discussions you had with folks out there. Not pointing at ourselves, but pointing at Jesus, like John the Baptist. Now, the Jewish religious leaders hear what John has to say, but they have some more questions. What does it mean that you are the voice? And how does it connect to all of this baptizing that you're doing? Look with me now at verse 24. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Who do you think you are? And why do you think you should do what you are doing? And here's where it gets really interesting. Because John says, John says this, Never mind who I think I am. I want to tell you about somebody else and who he is. I've been baptizing people to get, to, be, to get them ready to meet him. Verse 26. I baptize with water, John says. John replied, But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Don't ask who I am. I'm basically nothing. Not compared to this one. You ain't seen nothing yet. Wait until you get a load of him. 
What a thing to say. Now you need to know that in this day, only slaves would be tasked with untying the master's sandals. Disciples didn't have to do it. A disciple could be asked to do all kinds of menial tasks for their teacher, but they didn't have to put their hands on their teacher's feet. Only a slave would. And John says, I wish I was worthy to be his slave. This one who is coming, I'm not worthy to touch his feet. And John is not exaggerating here. This is not a false humility or beating himself up for not being good enough. This is true humility, which we all need to cultivate. And it is a right estimation of the way things really are. The one to come is really, truly that worthy. And John says that he is not just coming anymore. He's here. He says he's among you. He's here. And the very next day, John gets to testify about him in person. Verse 28. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, here's the answer to your question about why I baptize. I baptize because of this person. This man right here, he has showed up on the scene after me, yes, but he is infinitely more important than I am because he was before me. In fact, he is actually eternal. He is the Lamb of God. That's John's testimony, point number two. Jesus is the Lamb of God. If you're taking notes, point number one is, I am not the Christ. Point number two is, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And that phrase means so much. Jesus is like the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. Jesus is like the lamb that takes the place of the sinner who brings it as an offering. In fact, he's the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament lambs who were slain. They were all pointing towards him. Jesus is the Savior that the Old Testament promised. He fulfills all of the prophecies of the Messiah, including the ones about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's the next verse say? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb, like lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John IDs him. If you look at that guy's passport, it's going to say the Lamb of God. I wonder what that must have been like. Yesterday at the cruise, I was often IDing people. Oh yeah, I saw Keith. He's over there by the table. Oh, yeah. that guy over there in the black t-shirt, parking cars, 
That's my son Peter. The next thing you do is you give this sheet to the photographer helper. That's my daughter Robin. All day long I was IDing people. What was this like when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and he said, that man right there, that's the one I've been talking about. He is the Lamb of God. And more than that, he's going to take away the sin of the world. That's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was bearing the sin of the world so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him will be saved. Your sin taken away. My sin taken away. Taken away. John never gets over this idea. Later in life, he writes in 1 John, the one Joel preached to us later, earlier this summer, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then in, the, in his apocalypse, John keeps naming Jesus the Lamb. He calls him the Lamb. He says, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation? It's the only way for your sins to be taken away, for your sins to be removed. Somebody has to pay for your sins. And Jesus has done it for all who believe in Him. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And the reason why the Lamb of God can take away the sins of the world is because He is more than just the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. Look at verse 32. Last step in John's testimony this week. Verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Him. He's talking about Jesus. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John raises his right hand and he says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I testify. Number three. Jesus is the Son of God. John the baptizer is telling the story about the time that he baptized Jesus. Now he doesn't, this isn't the day that he did that. That happened before John 1, some day before this one. This, that story is also told in Matthew chapter 3 if you want to study it in detail. And if you want to take the baptism class, we will look at Matthew chapter 3 in detail together. John the Baptist says that God had sent him to baptize with water. And he had also told him when he did that, that one day while he was baptizing, he would see the Spirit of God come down on a man and remain on him. Not just like the Spirit did in the Old Testament when he would clothe someone with power to do something, a prophet, a priest, a king, a judge, and then lift off of him. But on this one, the Spirit would come down and remain on him permanently. In the fullest sense. In a unique way. A unique relationship with the Holy Spirit this one would have. And John says, it happened to me. 
I saw it with my own eyes. I testify. The Spirit came down from heaven as a dove. I don't even know what that means. But it was obvious to John that it was happening. It was unmistakable. It was just like Isaiah said in his chapter 11 about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. John says, I saw it happen with my own eyes. Jesus has the Spirit without limit. And that means that he can do something nobody else could do. He can baptize others with the Holy Spirit. I just do the water thing. It's a symbol. It's a wonderful symbol, but it's just a symbol. But this one, he baptizes with the Spirit himself, immersing his people in the Spirit and including them in his body, his new community, his church. He does for real what my water baptism just symbolizes. And John the baptizer heard the voice from heaven. Not just the voice in the desert that he was, but the voice of God the Father himself who said at the moment when the Spirit descended at Jesus' baptism, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So John says, verse 34, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. That means everything, doesn't it? He's saying John is the monogenes. Like we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 18. He is the holy, unique Son of the Father. It was obvious from that holy moment of Trinitarian significance, the Spirit descending, resting, remaining, the Father identifying and speaking His admiration, His adoration for His one and only Son. And John the Baptist saying, I saw it. I testify to it. Jesus is the Son of God. So what do we do with that in our lives today? How does that, how does that affect us on August 20th, 2023? If this is true, and we believe it is, how do we live our lives now? We worship. What else could we do but worship this person, the Son of God, who is God the Son? We give Jesus all of the praise and all of our lives in joyful worship. We head out these doors into our work week, and many of us into our school week, with lives that are centered on this Son of God. We live not for our own glory. We are not the Christ. Who do we think we are acting like we're the Messiah? But we do know him. We know he has come. We know that he saves. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've got to tell people about that. Kids, tell your classmates. Teachers, tell your colleagues in the teacher's lounge. We are not the point, but we point people to him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He sacrificed himself in our place, guilty 
vile and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. If we trust in Him, He takes away our sin. If we believe in Him, we get life in His name. And His name is the Son of God. Now, He wants us to change. We need to listen to the voice. We believe John's testimony and we hear His clarion call to repent, to make straight the way for the Lord. We allow the Lord to make the changes in our lives that He wants us to make because He is the Son of God. Interestingly, the Word has not yet spoken in this book. We made it all the way through chapter, verse 34 and Jesus has not spoken. Starting next week, he will begin to testify on his own account. But right now, we have John's testimony, and it is wondrous. John is not the Christ, not even close, but Jesus is. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the uniquely Spirit-endowed Father, beloved Son, worthy of our worship, both now and forevermore.